Good evening, church. Um, I was glad what they said unto me. Let us go. Come, let us go into the house of the Lord. Um, uh, let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we come and worship. We come because where else can we go? You are, you are life itself, Lord. And we, we come humbly asking that you would do as you promised, that you would guide us, that you would teach us, Lord. We pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would in, empower us to be able to not only hear the word, um, but to receive it with gladness, receive it with joy, receive it in the very depths of our soul. So as we go through this psalm tonight, I pray, God, that you would be glorified, and I pray, God, that you would would teach us. And we pray this all in the name of your holy and precious Son, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, so uh, if you have your copies of the scriptures, if you haven't turned already, like, uh, turn to Psalm 13, uh, which is our psalm for tonight. Um, As you know, uh, last week we kicked off this mini-series in the psalms, and every evening now in the the day, uh, the months of June and July, we'll be going through a psalm. Um, now, Psalm 13, written by David, is a part of a genre of psalm called laments. Uh, now, in laments, the, the psalmist is crying out to God in distress, right? He's in the midst of some kind of suffering, um, and he's crying out to God and hoping and praying and asking for God to intervene. Now, um, you know, last week, uh, Harry kind of talked about the fact that everyone wants that happy life. Everyone Everyone wants to be blessed. But we know that, unfortunately, pain and suffering are all too common in this world. Right? That's just a part of it. Job 14, 1 says, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. And that's our experience, isn't it? You know, in the grand scheme of life, we don't really live that long. And a lot of our days are full with stress, anxiety, trouble. And this may be why God in his wisdom made lament so prevalent in the book of Psalms. In fact, of all the types of Psalms or genre of Psalms, laments are the one that we see represented the most in the book of Psalms. They make up about 40% of the book. But I mean, I, look, I don't have to convince you that suffering is something that we face. I mean, the last two years alone, right? You had, you had pandemic, lockdown, isolation, economic concerns, social unrest, political unrest, sickness, and death. Even death of brothers and sisters in this very church. So what, what do you do? What do we do? when you run up against the reality of suffering in this life. Psalm 13 calls us to lament. Now, when it comes to laments, there are like three basic elements that make up a lament psalm. One, you have the, the protest, which is the, the psalmist is, is you know, bringing his complaint to God. He is crying out to God and, and, and saying, this is the issue. This is the problem that I am facing. The second one is the plea. 
Just think of this as the petition. This is, this is the psalmist coming to God and asking for him to intervene, for him to help. And then the last one is praise. Now, this is uh, the psalmist expressing confidence that God has heard their cry. And for our purposes tonight, these three elements are actually going to be our three points. So our three points for tonight are the psalmist protest, the psalmist plea, the psalmist praise. It's the psalmist protest, the psalmist plea, the psalmist praise. So let's jump in with the psalmist protest. If you look at the uh, first two verses, and even if you look at really um, uh, this, this uh, beginning section, right? You, you get a feeling, right, the minute you read it. Why? Because in the span of two verses, David repeats the same question four times. How long? And that tells us a lot, doesn't it? I mean, one, it tells us, it just, you could feel his desperate nature. You could feel he's at the end of his rope. And also, you, the, the, the question how long seems to imply that he's been going through this for some time. This isn't just something that just started, you know, 10 minutes ago. This is something that he has been in for some period of time. So what specifically is the crisis that David is facing with, uh, right now? Well, he kind of gives us three protests that lays out the problem that he's having. His first protest could be seen in verse 1. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Translation, he's saying that God, why, why have you abandoned me? He feels like he's been forsaken. He feels like he's been discarded. And the idea of being forgotten here, this idea of God forgetting, it isn't talking about like memory, right? God doesn't forget. He knows everything. That is it, the idea of forgetting here in this psalm is, is referring to the idea that because David uh, doesn't see that God has intervened, right? He doesn't see that God has intervened yet and answered his prayer. It is almost like he feels like God has forgotten him. See, in the Bible, when uh, it says that God has remembered, or he like remembers someone or remembers something, it's usually followed by him acting on behalf of those he remembered, right? So uh, two quick examples, Genesis 8-1, right? The, you know, it's been the, the flood. Uh, Noah and his family are in the ark, and it says, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were in, with him in the ark. And what does God do right after? It says he remembers uh, Noah and his family and the, the livestock that's in the ark. It says, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. See, he caused the wind to blow that begins to dry uh, up all the water so that Noah and his family and all the animals can come off the ark. He remembered Noah and then he acted on Noah's behalf. Another example could be seen in Exodus 2, uh, 20-24, where we see the Hebrew slaves crying out to the Lord. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because, their slave of their, because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He remembered Israel. He remembered his people. And in the very next chapter is where Moses um, and God meet at the burning bush. And God initiates his plan to rescue his people from slavery. See, David here in Psalm 13 is saying that his groaning 
has gone unheard. He feels that God is not intervening on his behalf, so it must be that God's forsaken him. David wonders if God has forgotten his promises to him. Also, you see this part where, uh, you know, David says, will you hide your face from me? Um, in the Old Testament, right, uh, the, the, especially we see this idea that uh, being face-to-face with God kind of uh, refers to or is linked with having a close and intimate relationship with him. Uh, if you look at Exodus 33.11, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. See, it's saying that Moses had such a close relationship with God, it was almost like they spoke face-to-face. And thus, when David says, when you hide your face from me, he said he feels like God's turned away. That their relationship has been severed somehow. But think about it. This is, this is David. This is the man God described as being after his own heart. But as the result of this, this crisis that he's going through, David may know this truth, but he doesn't really believe it. Or he doesn't feel it anymore. It doesn't feel as true as it used to. And now maybe he's wondering if he's been rejected like Saul was. But this isn't his only protest. The second one um, can be found in the first half of verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Man, David is, is, is wrestling in his soul with this situation. See, he's trying to make sense of what's going on here, right? He's trying to understand how he could be experiencing what he's experiencing given what um, he knows of God and given what God has promised him. And we know this feeling, don't we? This, this, this the restlessness of, of anxiety and trouble. You know that feeling where you, you're up all night just thinking about your problem, and thinking about ways that you can maybe try to get out of it or resolve it. Trying to figure out why is this happening to me. This is what David is going through. He's trying to figure it out. And even in the sense, it may even refer to the idea of David, maybe he's tried some ways to alleviate his issue and has been to no avail. It's been unsuccessful. So he's just tormented in his soul. And this brings us then to the final protest. Look at verse 2 again. It ends with, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? See, another layer of David's problem is that there is an enemy who seems to be oppressing or tormenting him in some way. Now, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written. So we can't be sure who he's specifically talking about. However, if you look over the life of David, he had no shortage of enemies who would seek his life, who would seek his downfall. And you see, in this, and, and when you hear his distress, when you hear what he says, you have to wonder, like, what happened to him? This is the same David when he was a youth in 1 Samuel 17, 37. He's, he, before he goes to face Goliath, right? He's going to face Goliath. Saul is like, yo, you are just a kid. How are you going to go against this guy? And what's David's response to him? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He was confident in God's deliverance. But what's happened to him? What's changed? Well, he's been suffering for an extended period of time. And see, this distress that he's in has worn down his patient faith. 
He's now impatient wanting God to act. And this caused some doubt to creep in. This caused him to wonder and have questions. However, David in faith is lamenting. Right? Because when it comes to lament, what, at the heart of it, lament is faith expressed in the tension between God's promises and our experience of suffering in a fallen world. I'll say it again. Lament is faith expressed in the tension between God's promises and our experience of suffering in a fallen world. And I know some of y'all are thinking, faith? What faith? I don't see no faith in these verses. What are you talking about? Well, I just want you to notice two things about David's, David's protest. One, if David feels abandoned, if he really, in his heart and soul, 100% feels abandoned and forsaken by God, why is he crying out to him? He says, how long, O Lord? He's crying out to God. That means he still has faith. David, David's faith may be bruised a bit, but it's not broken. He still believes God will respond to him. And then look at the question that David is asking. He asked, how long? That's not a question of, of whether or not, if, like, if, is God going to save me? If he's, uh, like, are you going to save me, God? Will you save me, God? No, that's not a question of if. It's a question of when. The question implies that he believes salvation is coming at some point. See, the fire of his faith may not burn as hot as it used to, but it's still burning. He still believes, and this is why in faith he, pro- he sends his protest to God. He comes to God with his issues. And I think right here is a good note to just mention that, guys, we have to be honest with God. We, we should go to God with our protest. Think about it. God knows the hearts of men. He knows what, how you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking, what you're going through. There's no piety in pretending with him. In the midst of sorrow, it's unfortunately common for us to wrestle with questions of God's goodness. That's why we have so many lament psalms. That's why we have the book of Job. That's why we have the book of Lamentations. It, we, their lament is just a part of life. Yes, our spirit is willing. We do believe, but we have to fight to believe. We have to fight to continue to believe. And the difference between the believer and the non-believer when it comes to bringing protest to God is because the fool or the wicked person uses suffering in this world to basically say in his heart, there is no God. To defiantly come against God and say, you don't exist, you do not rule over me, you are nothing. However, for the believer, expressing uh, protest doesn't indicate a lack of trust because believers protest in God, trusting that he will respond. Yet again, we cannot deceive God in how we're feeling. Remember the story in Mark 9? Um, a man comes to Jesus and says, uh, can you heal my child? And Jesus says to him, do you believe? And do you remember what his response is? Exactly. It's, I believe, help my unbelief. And brothers and sisters, that is our cry in this life. In protest, that is what David is doing. Friends, lament is faith expressed in the tension between God's promises and our experience of suffering in this fallen world. Friends, it's too easy to believe these truths when they're not tested. 
We can believe God is good, but do you still believe he's good when everything in your life has gone upended? It's gone upside down. See, because he still has faith in God, David, in his suffering, by prayer and supplication, lets his request be made known to God. And this leads us directly to our next point, the psalmist's plea. Look at uh, verse 3. It says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now, before, before we even get into his actual plea, I just want you all to notice something. Have you, do you see the, bre- per, the progression that's already started between verse 1 and this verse here in verse 3? Verse 1 starts with, O Lord. This verse here starts with, O Lord my God. This has gotten, this has gotten more intimate, more personal. There's already a progression starting to happen um, in David. But, but what is David's uh, petition here? It's consider and answer me. And that's fitting given what he says he feels, right? In verse 1, he says he feels that God has abandoned him, forsaken him. God is uh, no longer being attentive to him, no more listening to him. So he says, Lord, consider me. Look out for me. Answer me. You see, he... Um, he wants that intimate relationship again. He wants that friendship that he feels has been severed. That friendship that he feels is far off and distant. He wants it to be close. Also, when David here says, light up my eyes, it refers to like, um, kind of like vitality or kind of like getting life. Uh, if you remember, this is a while ago now that we were in 1 Samuel, but do you remember uh, 1 Samuel when Saul makes that rash vow, right? They, they're going against their enemies and, and they have seen some success. And he, he says, you know, uh, you know, no man will eat this day until we get our enemies. Any man who does will be put to death. I remember when it says that, you know, the men, uh, you know, the men they were tired and, and hungry. And Jonathan, when he was hungry, saw the honey. It was good to his eyes and he ate it. And I said, he lit up his eyes. It's the same idea. It's like, he's, he, well, David wants this kind of rush of vitality. And thus, David follows this, this request with two motivating reasons for God to answer his prayer. Now, these two reasons are spread out across three uh, statements, but you should notice them because they all start with the same word, lest. So the first reason, that he, 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 says God, he said God should be motivated to answer him, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I mean, essentially, help me or I die, Right? Help me or I will not make it. The second one, uh, it's the, these two statements are the same idea, just being parallel. It's, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You see, David's point here is um, that if the enemies of David, who are also the enemies of God, overcome him, they will rejoice. However, since David is God's anointed and chosen king, these enemies will see their triumph as not only over David, but also the God he serves. So in effect, David is saying, prevent these enemies from blaspheming your name. See, I want you to understand something. David here is, a, is appealing to God based on promises God made to him. Remember now, God anointed David as king. 
He said that he would be over all of Israel. God later makes a covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Basically, um, in that covenant, he makes many promises. And one of them, in particular, was, I will give you rest from all your enemies. David is saying that there's a particular enemy he does not have rest from. He's being tormented by this enemy. And in light of trying to figure out the promises that God's made to him and what he's going through, there's this tension. And this is why he's pleading with God. This is why he's petitioning God. Because in, in effect, he's saying, God, remember me and remember your promises to me. Brothers and sisters, this is a, a lesson for us in our pain, in our suffering. Go to God. Pray the very promises that he's promised us. See, these protests and pleas finally give way to his praise. Um, the psalmist prays here in verse 5. It says, um, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The word but there at the beginning of this, this verse, it signals that there's been a change in David. There's a change in how he's looking at the situation. The change is how he feels about his situation. However, if you look at verse 5 and then verse 6 right after, you'll notice that there's, he gives no indication or no sign or clue that anything has actually changed. Nothing seems to have, have been done. You know, no prayer has yet been answered, nor has he been yet delivered from his enemies. However, he's gone from the depths of despair that we see him in verse 1 to now this praise. How is this possible? Look what he says again. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. See, through his lament, through his, his uh, protest and his petition to God, David's eyes have been turned from his condition, turned from the situation that he's in, and turned to the character of the God he's been crying out to this whole time. See, because he's, he's lamented, this has produced in him, you know, as Philippians says, a perfect peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And think about it. If David uh, says that he is trusted in your steadfast love, and that idea of steadfast love is that God is faithful in his love. Well, if he looks at God's record of faithfulness, and this is what he's doing when he said, I've trusted in your steadfast love. He said, I've tr- I'm trusting in what I know about you. Well, what would he have remembered had he just even thought back to all the examples of steadfast love that he would have known? He would have remembered how God was faithful to God knowing his family from the flood. How God was, uh, fulfilled all his promises to Abraham. How God was faithful to make provision for Jacob and his family during a time of famine. How God delivered uh, the people of Israel from slavery and provided for them um, in the wilderness. And what about Joshua? Caleb, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samuel, on and on and on. People who, because of God's steadfast love, conquered kingdoms, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, escaped the edge of, swords, of the sword, were made strong out of weakness and put foreign armies to flight. But beyond just, you know, uh, examples from Israel's national history, David knows of God's faithfulness to him personally. Otherwise, how could he have defeated Goliath? 
How could he have survived Saul's several attempts on his life? David could look to his own experience and see that God had shown him steadfast love. And brothers and sisters, for us, we know of a far greater demonstration of the steadfast love of the Lord, don't we? We know of something far greater than David would have known at the time. Because God demonstrated his love, his steadfast love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And when you think about Jesus, his life and ministry was a lesson in lament. Right? He's called uh, the suffering servant and a man of sorrows. Think about all the issues that he faced in his life. Have you ever faced, uh, you know, just the stress of financial issues, poverty? Well, Jesus was poor. He grew up in a backwards town called Nazareth. Jesus said that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but he had nowhere to lay his head. You have issues with your family? Well, Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. And he was rejected by his own hometown. Enemies, the religious authorities plotted to kill him. Betrayal, one of Jesus' own disciples sold him out. And in his hour of need, his closest friends abandoned and denied him. But most terrifying of all, he faced the ultimate suffering. He faced having the wrath of God poured out on him. And for what reason did he face all of this suffering? Well, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. What is this joy it's talking about? Well, it's talking about the glorification of God through the purchase of a people for his possession. See, brothers and sisters, as we endure suffering, we have to remember that there's a joy set before us as well. The joy of perfect union with Christ. There's coming a day where we will all be with God and he will be with us forever. A day where there will be no more pain, sadness, or death. Just perfect communion with the Lord forever. And that is an encouragement to us as we endure. However, if you do not know Christ, if you're here tonight and and you've come and and, and you have not yet um, turned to our Savior, understand there is no joy set before you. Only the wrath of God. If you continue to reject Christ and his gospel. You see, the suffering you're experiencing now in this life is a warning for a greater suffering that it is to come if you do not turn to Jesus. Please understand, now, this evening, today is the day of salvation. Believe in Christ. Repent of of living for yourself, for your own name, for your own glory. Believe in him. Don't leave here tonight without talking to someone. Don't leave here tonight without learning more about how you could submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and how you could experience his salvation. Because then you will be able to rejoice as David does here. Look at verse 5 again. It says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. 
You see, David has chosen to trust in God. And because he's chosen to, to not look at his situation anymore, just put his full confidence and trust in God, this has now produced praise in him. And he no longer fears that God will forget him. He now celebrates God's intervention as if it's already happened. And this idea is reinforced by what he says next. Look at the, verse 6. It says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now he's confident. He's confident in God and his promises. And, and another way to render this verse, now this is going to sound a little awkward how it's said, but it'll, it'll help to, to kind of express what he's saying here. Um, it says, another way to render this verse would be, I will sing to the Lord because he shall have been good to me. See, David is so confident in the Lord's like, deliverance. He's saying that he knows he will have a song to sing to the Lord when he one day looks back at this situation. One day he's going to be able to know and see how God was good to him. However, there's a bit of a, a, a danger here for us. Understand, when David says this, he is not guaranteeing a... He's, saying, he's not saying that, I know in this life, I will know how God is being good to me. He's expressing confidence that one day, maybe in this life, but definitely in glory, he will be able to look back at this situation and know what's going on. He'll be able to have confidence in what God was doing. He'll be able to see how God was being good to him. But the reality is, in our suffering, let's, let's be honest here, that's really hard to believe. For us, sometimes, it's really hard to believe that there isn't anything good happening, that there's any redemptive, anything redemptive happening in our suffering. In some ways, what David is saying here kind of reminds me of another verse. You know it because every time a Christian is in any type of despair, it's one of the first verses that people go, go to. Romans 8, 28. Right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and there's a similar idea here that David is expressing, but I, I want you to not fall into a trap that many of us do. You see, we can misunderstand David's praise in verse 6, and we can misunderstand Romans 8.28, and in our distress, we could try to pinpoint and see, well, where is God being good to me? What is he doing? And see, what happens is we're looking for some good to help us feel like it was all worth it, help us to feel closure, Right? Think about how many times like, you, know, you get the question of, well, how was good, God good in my divorce? How was God good in my father's death? How was God good in my rape? How was my God good in my daughter's death? I remember a story of my pastor in the Bahamas. He, his uh, daughter lived in the States. And one day, a man, his, her husband worked at some sort of uh, like construction site. And I guess the guy was fired. He was disgruntled. He comes to their home, kills both my, uh, my former pastor's daughter and son-in-law, and leaves their infant child in the crib. And I remember, uh, it was profound to me, I remember uh, as a child, I used to hear him talk about it, and he used to say, like, for many years, it was tough for him. He would come, he would preach, he would believe, but a part of him was still wrestling with why such a dreadful thing had happened. 
You see, friends, sometimes people in suffering, yes, this is true. It is true that God is doing, that God is good. But the idea here in Romans 8.28, the idea that David is expressing is not that we're trying to look for it or that we would even be able to understand it and know it. You see, the idea here is that we have to trust that God is good. And this reminds me of Job. You know, Job tries to find an answer for his suffering. If you know the story, um, he, has, uh, he loses everything. His family, his possessions, his health, everything. And this eventually leads him to make a, uh, a ton of protest to God. He's trying to wrestle with, you know, his seemingly innocent. He doesn't know of any clear sin that he's committed. He's, he's trying to understand what is going on. Why is God doing this to him? And eventually God does come to Job. He answers Job. And he asks him like a series of questions kind of designed to help Job to see God's power and control and strength and majesty. And you see, in response, right, Job hears all of this. God never answers Job's question about why. But after Job hears all that God says, in Job 42.5, he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the air, but now my eye sees you. Job never gets the, the reason for his suffering. Instead, he gets his eyes open to who God is is. Likewise, David's assurance isn't coming from the fact that he knows how God will deliver him or how all this will work out for good. And his assurance isn't coming from the fact that he thinks that in this life he will actually know and be able to explain what's going on. See, his assurance, his confidence is a result of his eyes being open to the steadfast love of the Lord. Thus, David is assured, while he is facing evil, while while he is experiencing pain and distress, no matter how terrible it is, it cannot and will not overcome him because he belongs to God, and God is steadfast in his love. Friends, most of us, many of us will not... um, For most of uh, the pain we uh, experience in this life, we will not know... Why? We won't be able to give a neat answer that's going to make us feel comfortable with understanding everything that has happened. Friends, when David sings, I, when he says, I will sing, he's doing so not in the anticipation of answers in this life, but, when, but with the anticipation that when he's within glory, when he's in glory with the Lord, he will sing like the psalmist in Psalm 105. The psalmist says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. There's a song, um, one of, a song I really like. Uh, it's a hymn, an old hymn called Art Thou Weary? And the last verse of that song is very interesting, right? Um, because it says, finding, following, keeping, struggling, is he sure to bless? And then it says, apostles, prophets, saints, martyrs, answer, yes. And friends, we, the cloudy mystery that's suffering in this life, we, we, we won't be able to clear it. However, through lament, we can focus on what is clear to us in this life, what we can know 
And that is God is good. Because he's promised it. He's steadfast in his love. He is not like a man who lies. It's like we often sing, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn to Jesus. That's the encouragement in Romans 8.28. It's the encouragement to understand. You may not be able to understand the good that's being worked out, but you can trust the God that is good. Hold on to Christ. And friends, that is the theme of our two application points tonight. Um, The first application point being, hold on to Christ through the journey of lament. Now, we, you know, life isn't like the movies, right? Life isn't um, neat and tidy. And what I mean by that is um, sadness, sorrow, it's, it's a journey. There's twists, there's turns. And you see, even though we see David's uh, protest in verse 1 uh, turn to plea by the end of the psalm, we're never given like a timeline. We don't know how long in his, his life, the journey from his perspective in verse 1 to verse 6 actually took. Was it days, months, weeks, years, decades even? We don't know. See, Psalm 23, 5, um, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fare no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. See, God promises us companionship in our despair. This isn't like Google Maps. He's not, he doesn't give us an ETA. He doesn't give us the, the, you know, the path and the, the, the actual directions that you know, this, this time of lament will go, our despair will go. And don't be fooled by Psalm 13. You know, it's, its structure is very nice and tidy, right? We go straight from you know, the protest in verse 1 all the way to praise at the end. But that's not often, that straightforward progression is not often how things work out in, in this life for us. And to be honest, not even in all the other lament psalms. For example, Psalm 44, which is a lament psalm, it uh, begins with praise, actually. Unlike this psalm uh, here in 13, it actually starts with the psalmist praising God. And that praise culminates with the proclamation in uh, verse 8 that says, this is Psalm 44, verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. And that proclamation is followed by, and look at verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. The psalmist continues to lament, and, and look at 18, uh, verse 18 and 19, verses 18 and 19. It says, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. This psalm, it ends with a plea. Verse 26, it says, Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And sometimes this is what despair is like. Some days will begin with praise and end with a desperate plea. Other days might just end with us being in despair, like Psalm 88, which has the distinction of being the only lament psalm 
that does not contain praise. It ends on this painful protest here. This is Psalm 88, 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. We're uncomfortable with this, aren't we? The idea of having to go through the ebbs and the valleys of distress. Having the ups and downs of a season of suffering. We're uncomfortable with the idea of having to trust in God and the certainty of uncertainty of life. We don't like unresolved pain. We love to talk about how, you know, David becomes king. We don't really like to think about the fact that he spent several years of his life on the run from Saul. We, don't, we like to talk about the fact that Joseph is, uh, you know, he's made like a prime minister in Egypt, and he's able to help his family survive the famine. But we don't really like to think about the fact that he was sold to the slavery when he was 17, and he doesn't see his family again until he's closer to 33. And a couple of years of his time in Egypt, he was in prison. We like to hear the story when it's completed. We don't like unresolved pain. And this hurts us because sometimes when our brothers and sisters are in despair, we are uncomfortable. We react with discomfort, which is why we're quick to try and see if we can move a person if they're in, you know, Psalm 13.1, if they're in the depths of despair. We try to quickly push them down to praise, right? You know, we give them, uh, you know, Christian platitudes. We tell them it's going to be all right. God has a plan, all of these things. We try to help them see the bright side. And we're not doing it for their benefit. If we're honest, we're doing it for ours because we're uncomfortable. We don't like to sit in distress. Sadly, we even avoid people who are in despair sometimes. You know what it is. Man, you know, I would go see Brother Paul, but he's going through a lot. And, man, I can't handle that right now. Friends, this is why sometimes in the depths, uh, the depths of our suffering, we feel alone. Because sometimes... As brothers and sisters in Christ, we let each other down. But Christ doesn't let you down. He is with you always. And friends, the encouragement for us is that sometimes the greatest gift that we can give somebody in suffering is not an answer, not a fix-it or a solution. Sometimes the greatest gift is to sit with them and lament. To sit with them and together take protest and please to God. Point them to Jesus, who has the words of eternal life. Point them to Jesus, who can light up their eyes. If you're here tonight and you feel like God has abandoned you, I can't tell you when you will reach the praise that David feels here in verses 5 and 6. I can tell you God has promised to never leave or forsake you. I can tell you that he's promised that your mourning will turn to joy. So until then, until you experience those truths, Take your protest and pleas to Christ. And this gets to our second application and final one. Hold on to Christ. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, because everybody, listen. Because Christ holds on to you. That's the encouragement. Just think about this for a second. If it was really just up to us to hold on to Christ, if it was really up to us to keep um, pressing forward during pain and despair, we would have failed. The only way we can endure suffering is because Christ is holding on to us. He will not let your faith be extinguished. Look what he says in John 6, 39. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Friends, Christ promises that all that God has given him, all that the Father has given him, all the people that he's purchased with his blood, will not be lost. Also look in John 10, 28. Speaking of, of those who believe in him, he says, I give them eternal, eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Nothing can snatch you out of the hand of Christ. Neither despair, doubt, death, nor anything else from creation can separate you from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, just in case some of you all are thinking, well, okay, you know, nothing can snatch us out of our hand. But maybe he could throw us away. Maybe he could discard us. Maybe he could throw us away. Look at John 637. This is Christ. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christ will never cast you out. Never. Are you in despair? Go to Jesus. He will not cast you out. Are you weary? Are you doubting? Go to Jesus. He will not cast you out. Are you angry? Have you sinned against him? Go to Jesus. He will not cast you out. We can confidently go to Christ with our lament because he will never, ever turn us away. He will never forsake us. But as I know this is repetitive, I've said it many times, turn to Jesus. But I'm saying it so many times because really in our suffering, in our despair, that is really the only hope we have. Hold on to Christ because he holds on to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are over all things. You are in control of everything. Not, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without you knowing. And Lord, it, the truth is, we struggle sometimes with that. We struggle with that when we come up against pain and suffering in our lives. But we thank you that you are gracious to us that you show us steadfast love despite our hearts being prone to wander. Lord, we pray, Lord, that this, as we consider the words of this psalm, we consider lament. Lord, may we come to you honestly. May we feel that you uh, will not throw us away. You will not discard us. You will not turn us back. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to us. And we pray, God, that we would not only um, believe those truths in word, but believe that in our very soul. Lord, we believe, but help us with our unbelief. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.